In our gospel today, there are two people, in many ways very much the same. They are both criminals. They are both crucified. They are both next to Jesus, and they both acknowledge him as a king. But in every way that truly matters, they are fundamentally different. For one of them cries out, save yourself and us, and the other prays, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And I want to be clear, save yourself and us is a perfectly reasonable thing to say to your Savior, right? It's a perfectly reasonable thing to say to the person who you believe to be your king. In the Jewish scriptures, kings have two roles. The first is to protect God's people, and the second is to administer justice. Martin Luther describes these roles as the role of the temporal kingdom, or what he'll call the kingdom of the left hand. And he says the role of the kingdom of the left hand is given to us by God to restrain evil so that there may be an outward semblance of peace in this world that the gospel might be able to be proclaimed. So when the thief that tradition says hangs on the left side of Jesus cries out, save yourself and us, he is simply asking Jesus, king of the Jews, to do what the king is supposed to do. He's saying, hey, wait a minute. We are being crucified by a travesty of justice carried out by a foreign nation. This sure doesn't feel like justice. This sure doesn't feel like peace. Jesus, do your job. And let's be clear, Jesus could do this, right? Jesus could pull himself off the cross. Jesus could cast the Roman soldiers into the sea. Jesus could save the criminals and himself from death. This is what Colossians is trying to tell us when it tells us that Jesus is the image of the invisible God, that Jesus is the firstborn of all creation, that all things are made through him, whether visible or invisible, that everything, all thrones, all dominions, all rulers, all powers exist through him and for him. Colossians is trying to tell us that Jesus is the most powerful force in the universe, so Jesus can do this. And the criminal on the left side of Jesus is willing to buy into it. This is, in fact, the premise of his request. He's saying, Jesus, exalt yourself and us. You have the power to save us from this place of pain and raise us up to your place of glory. Martin Luther has a word, has a phrase to describe what the thief on the left is asking. Martin Luther calls it a theology of glory. And a theology of glory says, well, God must be found in the places of power, in the places of knowledge, in the places of beauty, in the places of perfection, because after all, God is all-powerful, all-knowing, all-beautiful. God is perfect, and so the purpose of religion is to teach us how to drag ourselves from where we find ourselves now to those places of perfection, of knowledge, of beauty, of power. The goal of religion is to help us get from where we are now to where God is so that we can be with God. 
And if the thief on the left has this theology of glory, he's saying, wait a minute. If this is what a God is supposed to do, if this is what God's chosen one is supposed to do for me, what gives? Because I have God's chosen one right next to me. I have God's Messiah, God's King. Why isn't he doing what a king is supposed to do? Now, I am blessed to have as a father-in-law, a man named Steve Cook, who's a psychologist. And as it happens, Steve and I have been talking about this very passage for about the past nine months. And Steve tells me that there's a branch of psychology called dialectical behavior therapy. And it has an understanding that when we are faced with an intolerable situation, we have three choices. One, we can change the situation. Two, we can accept the situation. Or three, we can be miserable. So those are the only three choices you got, right? You can change the situation, accept the situation, or be miserable. And the goal is, of course, to change the situation. You're sick. What do you do? You go to the doctor. You get medicine. You try to get better. Yeah? Someone's mistreating you in your life. What do you do? You set boundaries. If necessary, you remove yourself from the relationship. There's injustice in your community. What do you do? You organize to affect change. Your first goal is to change the situations, but sometimes we encounter a situation that we cannot change, no matter how hard we try. Perhaps it's the death of a loved one. Perhaps it's the realization that a family member that we love fundamentally disagrees with us on an issue that is important to both of us, and that nothing we do or say will change that loved one's mind. Or perhaps we find ourselves nailed to a cross, and no matter what we do, we can't change the situation. And so, psychology tells us in that moment, we have two options. We can either accept the situation or be miserable. And I want to be clear, when I say accept the situation, I don't mean agree with it, I don't mean endorse it. When I say accept the situation, I mean accept that it is the reality in which we find ourselves in. It means letting go of wishing that reality was different. It means finding a way to live with what is. Now, accepting our situation, it doesn't take away our pain, but it does spare us from suffering. Because you see, pain and suffering are two different things. Pain is a message that our body sends us when something is wrong, either physically or emotionally. Pain is like the light on your car dashboard that goes off when something needs to be fixed. And in this way, pain is in fact a blessing from God because pain is our body's way of knowing that we need to address something in our life. But suffering, suffering is our response to pain. Suffering is how we make meaning of the pain that we experience. Suffering comes from our refusal to accept the pain for what it is, refusing to accept it by trying to live in some sort of fantasy where we pretend it doesn't exist, by blaming other people for the pain that we are feeling, or by 
assuming that because we are experiencing pain, that that pain gets to define the entirety of who we are. Pain and suffering are two different things, but so long as we refuse to accept the pain which we experience, we will inflict suffering upon ourselves. The understanding that we have these three options, and only these three options when we face an intolerable situation of either changing the situation, accepting the situation, or being miserable, right? Dialectical behavioral therapy calls this radical acceptance, but as Christians, we have for decades called it the serenity prayer. For those of you who are familiar with the serenity prayer, this is its basic message. God, grant me the serenity to accept the things that I cannot change, the courage to change the things that I can, and the wisdom to know the difference. The thief to Jesus' left spends his dying breaths railing because he wants to try to change a reality that he cannot. He wants Jesus to be a king that he will not be. And because of that, the pain that he experiences on the cross becomes the thief's own suffering. So much suffering exists in this world because we want, like the thief on the left, for God to be our government. We want God to do the role of government, of providing protection and safety for us all in our life, and that only leads to disappointment, resentment, and despair. But the inverse is also true, that so much suffering exists in this world when we realize that God won't be our government, and so we try to make our government our God. We try to make the government the source of our identity, the source of our purpose, the source of love and fulfillment in our life, opening the door to totalitarianism. But whether we make God into our government or our government into God, either way takes pain and turns it into suffering. Now, I have up on the screen an Orthodox cross. And as compared to the Latin cross, which is, has just a single horizontal bar, the Orthodox cross has three horizontal bars. And the one on the bottom represents the footstool to which Jesus' feet were nailed on the cross. Because, you see, if you just hang on the cross with your arms, eventually you'll suffocate to death. And it'll happen pretty quickly. But if you have your feet nailed up high so that you can brace yourself with your legs, well, then you can stay alive long enough to bleed to death. Romans are real considerate people giving Jesus a footstool like this, yeah? Now, you'll notice that bottom bar is slanted. If you think of it from Jesus' perspective, the part to the left points down and the part to the right points up. And in Orthodox theology, this represents the fate of each of the thieves, one to the left and one to the right, right? The one to the right pointing up towards paradise and the one to the left pointing downward towards hell. Now, I want to be clear. Scripture never says that the thief to Jesus' left is damned to hell. But theologians surmise this because of how the thief behaves in his time alive, right? I want to be clear. Hell is not some fiery abyss apart from God's presence, no, Colossians tells us that God is pleased to reconcile to himself all things in heaven and on earth through the blood of the cross. 
God has reconciled himself to all things, which means there is no place and no one who is apart from God. Hell is not God's absence. Hell is being in God's presence and hating it. The thief on Jesus' left is with Christ on the cross. But he despises Christ because Jesus is not who the thief wants him to be. Jesus is not the king that the thief wants him to be. And so being with Jesus in that place, that thief is already in hell. But that bottom bar on the Orthodox cross, it points upwards to paradise on the right side for the thief on the right-hand side. And like the thief on the left, the thief on the right doesn't have to die to experience paradise because paradise is not where you are, it's who you're with. And the thief on the right is with Christ. The thief on the right is with his king, with his Messiah, with his God. Yes, he is in pain on the cross, but his pain is not suffering because the thief on the right has accepted his pain. He accepts his own responsibility for what he is experiencing in that moment. He says, we are justly condemned for our actions. We are getting what we deserve. But he doesn't let that pain define who he is because in contrast to a theology of glory, the thief on the right-hand side has a theology of the cross. Yes, the thief on the right-hand side will agree with Colossians that Jesus is the image of the invisible God, that he is the firstborn of all creation, that all things are made through him, that he has the first place in all things. But the thief to the right knows that Colossians continues to say that in Jesus the fullness of God was pleased to dwell and that through him God has reconciled himself to all things in heaven and on earth through the blood of the cross. You see, the thief on the right-hand side knows that God is all-powerful and all-glorious, yes, but God's greatest glory is to be with us. God is reconciled to us on the cross, which means that instead of us having to get ourselves to those places of glory, to those places of power and beauty and knowledge and perfection to be where God is, God is willing to come to where we are, to be with us in our weakness, to be with us in our foolishness, to be with us in our brokenness, because God wants to be with us more than anything in the world and so God will find us even on the cross. To the thief on the right-hand side, the cross and the pain that he experiences is not a divine injustice to be resented and to become a source of suffering in his life. To the thief on the right-hand side, the pain that he experiences on the cross is shared with Christ. It is a way in which he is connected to God. In the Orthodox cross, that top bar, it represents the place where Pontius Pilate wrote, King of the Jews over Jesus. But when the Orthodox 
paint the cross, they don't write King of the Jews on that top bar. They write King of Glory. Because they know that the greatest glory of the all-powerful God is to be with us in our weakness. And so that is why when I read the gospel, before I read it, I bow to the cross. And after I read it, I bow to the cross. So that as we look for Jesus, as we look for Christ, as we look for the ruler of the universe, we might look in the one place where God has truly revealed him with us on the cross. It is a way of reminding us that if we want to know whom all the governments of this world are created to serve, we are meant not to look at our president, not to look at the White House, not to look at palaces and princes. We are meant to look at an innocent man on death row. For all the governments of the world exist to serve him. And so we, like the thief on the left, come to realize that Christ is king, yes, but not of a temporal kingdom, but of a spiritual kingdom. For Jesus protects and Jesus administers justice, but Jesus' protection is a love that is stronger than death. And Jesus' justice is a forgiveness that grants mercy even to those who nail him to the cross. This is Christ's kingship. And Christ's kingdom is wherever such love and forgiveness reign. Which means that Christ's kingdom is not a place where we are at, but it is how we are. For the kingdom of God is not where we are, but how we are in Christ. And so, when the thief on the right prays, remember me, when you come into your kingdom, in that moment, his prayers are fully answered. There are two people in our gospel. On the outside, they look very much the same. They are both criminals. They are both crucified. And they are both beside Christ. They both acknowledge him as king. But one cries out, save yourself and us, and the other prays, remember me. We will be both of these thieves in our lifetimes. We will cry out, both save me and remember me when we are faced with the intolerable. But whether in that moment we curse Christ or praise him, Christ will be there with us, beside us. For the greatest glory of our King is to be with us in our pain that we might be saved from our suffering and united with him in life everlasting. Amen.